Tonight is October 15th, 2014. We're going to continue the message, Tabernacles and Dead Dogs. But during our worship, we sang a song and asked the Lord, show us your glory. Show us your glory. Do you want to see the glory of the Lord? In 2 Corinthians 3, starting in verse 17. Now the Lord is spirit, and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we, who with unfailed faces, all reflect the Lord's glory are being transformed into His likeness with ever-increasing glory which comes from the Lord who is Spirit. Do you want to see the Lord's glory? You find the Lord's glory in such unusual places. Miss Joellen, would you stand up? You want to see the glory of the Lord? It's in an ordinary woman. Wade Sutherland, would you stand up? You want to see the glory of the Lord. He said, we reflect the glory of the Lord. You see it in ordinary man. You want to see the glory of the Lord. Could you stand up, Elisha? It's when a woman fights through difficulty, puts a smile on her face and says, my God is worth it. You want to see the glory of the Lord. He's happening all around us. It's when ordinary people are filled with an extraordinary God. We can worship Him and ask, show us, show us, show us. And He's saying, you, show me, show me, show me. I gave you my glory. Reflect it. Live in it. Shine in it. You are the glory of the Lord. You brothers can have a seat. This is what the world wants us to do. Is sit down and shut up. But the living God has called us to reflect His glory. We can hide the ark of God at Obed-Edom's house. We can say the price is too high. It's too hard. And I feel too persecuted. Or you can say whatever the cost, whatever the distance that I have to travel, I was made to house the glory of God. The glory of God is not a matter of food and drink. It's not a matter of rules and regulation. It's not a matter of attendance. The glory of God is a matter of obedience. You want to show the glory of God? It won't come through our bumper stickers. It won't come through our t-shirts. It comes in the difficult moments when others shrink away and you press forward. Do you want to see the glory? When you become the glory of God... You become the dregs of the earth, the despised. In the message that we were covering on Sunday, because the Lord loves me and loves to discipline me, because He loves me and treats me like a son, I said that pastors that preach series are simply lazy pastors. I stand before you tonight a lazy pastor. In an hour and a half, I couldn't get done what God wanted to get done because I'm woefully inadequate. But tonight, I'm going to reflect the Lord's glory. 
I can eat my words. I've been doing it my whole life. I can put both feet in my mouth. But tonight I'm going to show the Lord's glory. I apologize to all of you pastors out there that preach many series. If it's a good series, you have our endorsement. If you're a lazy pastor, if the shoe fits, wear it. But apparently, occasionally, you need to preach a series. If you weren't here Sunday, we're not going to review it because we want to keep our eyes on the glory. But I do want to say this. When David was dancing with all of his might, reflecting the glory of the Lord, not everybody likes the reflection. When you shine the light of the Lord, some will say you have your high beams in their low eyes. When you shine the light of the Lord, some will say you're burning me with your presence. David had a wife that was in covenant with him. They're supposed to be one, even as the bride of Christ and Christ himself are to be one. But when she saw him dancing, she despised him in her heart. In 2 Samuel 6, in verse 16, as the ark of the Lord was entering the city, oh, do you want the ark in your city? Do you want his presence in your life? I will not relegate to oxen and new carts the job that God gave to me. They are not to reflect the glory of God. I am. You are. When the ark of God was entering into the city, Michael, daughter of Saul, watched from the window. I will not be a window watcher when I'm supposed to be a street performer in the name of Jesus. The others can say that we're jesters and clowns if they want to. But I put my life on full display for the world to see that they might see the glory of God. Every once in a while, I have to clean the mirror. Every once in a while, it needs a little Holy Ghost Windex. And I apologize that there's so much of me in it. But don't mistake the earthen vessel for the treasure inside of it. These little cracks... These broken places where you get to see my weakness and I get to see yours, they reveal the glory of the Lord. And when she saw the king leaping and dancing before the Lord, she despised him in her heart. Oh my God, that I would never despise your working, Lord. And I repent that I have so many times before. New revival breaks out. And you see a manifestation you've never seen before and, and oh, that can't be God. Why can't it be God? Because it didn't happen and He didn't check with you? I don't want to be a window watcher when I'm called to dance in the streets. The very first sign we ever put up in this church is perform out there what you have practiced in here. You are the tabernacle of God. His ark has entered your city. You with an unveiled face reflect His glory. Roll up the sides of the tent. Weaknesses, strengths, talents and lack thereof. Let them see you that they might see the glory of God. The times are getting dark. 
And that makes it easier for your life to be distinct. She despised him in her heart. I want to tell you that there is a long line of people that despise God in their heart. And they show up in the most unusual of places. In Genesis 25, look at verse 34. Then Jacob gave Esau some bread and some lentil stew. He ate and drank, then got up and left. So Esau despised his birthright. You and I have a birthright from God. When you were born again, you were made the temple of God. When you were put in right standing with God, your life was made in the righteousness of Christ at that moment so that your birthright would be you reflect the glory of God. There will always be those who want their very best life right now. There will always be those who will sell this glory for whatever they can gain today. Their God is their stomachs and they live for this moment. But I want the eternal. I want the heavenly bread. And I'm convinced that His glory shines brightly in my weakness. And if you do without today, it's because heaven will supply your need tomorrow. In the name of Jesus, I say no to fleshly appetites that say I must live for now. In the name of Jesus, I live for the kingdom that is coming upon this earth and I want the world to see that glory. Men like Esau have always dwelt with the righteous. They consider themselves brothers with brothers like these two who would need enemies, right? Then there have been those that are out and out hostile. Goliath in 1 Samuel 17.42 He sees David is ruddy and handsome. Who likes someone like that? <laughs> Don't you love? Do you remember Sybil Shepherd's commercial? In the 90s she said, Don't hate me because I'm beautiful. Well, don't hate me because I'm anointed. It's my father's fault. He smeared me with himself and I'm here to reflect him. He looked David over and saw that he was only a boy, ruddy and handsome. And he despised him. Why did he despise him? Who does this handsome, pretty boy think he is to stand in front of me? He's weak. He's inferior. But David had something that Goliath didn't have. Even as Jacob had something Esau didn't have, he was laying hold of the eternal. Jacob valued something that Esau didn't value. David had something that Goliath didn't have. They were messengers of the glory of God. They are those whose natures would be changed in a moment. They are those who would venture it all on a battlefield for the glory of God and not their own. And they were despised for it. The fleshly say, I live for now. They hate your weakness and consider you inferior. You're in good company. In Isaiah 53, in verse 3, a familiar passage of Scripture, 
He was despised and rejected by men. Look at verse 2. Why was he despised and rejected? He grew up before them like a tender shoot. And like a root out of dry ground, he had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance, appearance that we should desire him. For this reason, he was despised and rejected. A man of sorrows and familiar with suffering. David was beautiful and the world hated him. Jesus was ordinary and the world hated him. Maybe it's the glory they hate. Maybe it's the favor that our God has lavished upon us that they hate. You are so ordinary. How can we esteem you? Why would you think you're so special as to be able to change the world? Why would you think you are so special as to make a difference? What makes you think you're important isn't this the carpenter's son who grew up in our very own town? When we think... On things like Esau. Matthew 13, 22 comes to mind. There has always been this factor in the kingdom. The one who received the seed that fell among the thorns is the man who hears the word. But the worries of this life and the deceitfulness of wealth choke it, making it unfruitful. We need to learn our lesson if we're messengers of the glory, if we reflect the glory, there can be nothing growing alongside it that competes with it. There can be nothing to choke it out. You must work the soil of your very own heart so that it's called noble and fruitful and remains connected to Christ. Esau was unable to control the things that he wanted alongside his birthright. So not being able to serve two masters... He hated one and loved the other. In 1 Corinthians 15, 19, the Apostle Paul spoke of the kind of attitude that we have. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are to be pitied more than all men. He knew that we did not live for today's pleasure. We're willing to be persecuted today. We're willing to endure hardship today. Because it reveals the glory of God that is coming upon the sons of God. Who would be in prison? Who would be cast out of their families? Who would be hated for His sake? Only someone convinced that glory was waiting on them. Where is the conviction that has defined the church through the ages? In Romans 8, verse 18 He sums it up so well. It might be the kind of anthem that we need to consider writing in our Bibles, writing on our mirrors, putting in our cars. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. Today's suffering doesn't compare. The creation waits in eager expectation for the sons of God to be revealed. They are waiting to find out whether you really are a messenger of the glory. How long must they wait? For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it in hope. What was the hope? The hope was that after being frustrated, 
after seeing bondage, when they got a glimpse of glory, they would want it. That the creation itself would be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God. The King of Kings has appointed you a messenger. You are to reflect His presence. The world around us is in bondage and they think that they're in the freedom to choose their best life right now. I don't know anyone that has lived selfishly that is actually happy. And conversely, I don't know anyone that has worked hard to give their life away that regrets it. It turns out that the thing that our flesh desires the most kills us and the thing that our flesh hates the most brings us life. Perhaps he who loses his life actually finds it. When we think on men like Goliath, they miss something. They miss something of Hebrews. It's found in Hebrews 11 and verse 32. They miss something about the sons of God. They miss something about the people of God. Hebrews 11.32 says, And what more shall we say? I do not have time to tell about Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, and the prophets who through faith conquered kingdoms, administered justice, and gained what was promised, who shut the mouths of lions, quenched the fury of flames, and escaped the edge of the sword, whose what? Weakness was turned to strength and became powerful in battle and routed foreign armies. Do you think that if Goliath understood this, he would have hated the weakling standing in front of him? Do you think he would have despised him? Or would he have looked at David and gone, oh no, oh no. The King Almighty likes to take these and display His glory. He likes to take the weak and triumph over the strong. All of the power of our federal government may come to bear upon our faith. Before that day, it looks as if the power of our municipal government may come to bear on our faith. Oh, please, giant, pick the fight with the weaklings. Please, in the name of Jesus, make the same mistake as the father of lies did so long ago, if he had understood what he was doing, he never would have killed the Lord of glory. Please attack the church. I was born for this moment. I was born again for this moment. The glory of God rests in us. I have no fear. Islam, bring on your, your minions. Secularist, humanist, devils. I have nothing to fear. And I have only hope to offer you. In the name of Jesus, if David can overcome Goliath, if his weakness can become strength, what message does that speak for the sons of God? In Romans 8 in verse 26, we find still more hope for our souls. In the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weaknesses. How does He help us? In our weaknesses. Don't despise what you are. You are a reflection of God's glory. The poorer the canvas, the greater the artist. 
The worse shape that you're in, the more glory it gives Him. He picked you because you were a mess. In the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groans that words cannot express. Oh, Jesus. And He who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints in accordance with God's will. You can bring your attorney. You can bring your bank account. I have brought the Spirit of the living God. I know what it is to be falsely accused. I know what it is to be sued. I know what it is to win only to go to an appeal. It turns out that it's through many trials and tribulations that we enter the kingdom. And every trial and every tribulation is an opportunity to reflect His glory. The very next verse in Romans, Romans 8 and 28, everyone quotes, but we've detached it from the glory that is its, that is His. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love Him, who have been called according to His purpose. His purpose is that you would reveal His glory. The more they squeeze the olive tree, the more anointing that comes out of the olives. Through the years we have been burned, we have been shot, we have been beheaded, we've been in prison, we've been crushed with stones. And those men and women went to glory and the world watched them do it and they were better for it. This is our hour, church. This is not an hour to hide in a hole. This is an hour to take the ark up on Zion. And let the world see what you have inside of you. Oh, should we shrink back from such an hour as this? When you think on Esau, he valued what he could get in this life, but I value what is coming upon me in the next. When you think on Goliath, he hated the weakness. He hated the man who was inferior to him. And I love my weaknesses and boast in them because my inferiority is his superiority. When you think on Jesus, they hated him because he was ordinary. Can we esteem a man like that? In Acts 4 and verse 13, there were some other ordinary men. And the religious men of their day happened to be the civil government of their day as well. When they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished and took note that these men had been with Jesus. The more ordinary, the more plain, the more reason not to esteem them brought them to one inescapable conclusion. These men have been smeared with the very presence of God. Oh, give me some. We sing, Lord, show us your glory, but I can hear the Spirit of Christ saying, I've shown you mine, show me yours. He put His presence inside of us. Oh, wow. Maybe it is high time that we began thinking on some of those early Scriptures. Maybe 1 Corinthians 1 
in verse 28 has even more meaning today than it did yesterday. He chose the lowly things of this world and the what kind of things? You're supposed to be despised. Get used to it. And the things that are not to nullify the things that are. Our God likes to take the little guy and triumph over the big one. You will always be outnumbered. You will always be outgunned. You will always be overlooked. And you will always have the glory of God to make up the difference. Oh, we are more than conquerors in Christ Jesus. If He is with me, who can stand against me? We are the victorious church of Jesus Christ. Perhaps if we believed it, we would act like it. I say this to the church world this day. Luke 6 and verse 26 says, Woe unto you. Woe to you when all men speak well of you, for that is how their fathers treated the false prophets. I want to encourage you, church, we are not in a popularity contest. He who gets the most votes at the end of the day does not get the decision from this judge. We are to be the despised things of the world. Oh, what kind of plan must God have to choose lowly and despised things? The kind of plan that rests firmly upon His ability in you. What the glory of God has invested in you. You take an Egyptian man in his 20s. You take a little girl from Louisiana. He'll take somebody from Angleton, Texas. And he will rest the hope of the ages on your shoulders. How many of you have been so obedient to the Lord that you have no worries? (laughs) Me either. He might trust his ability to work in you more than you trust his ability to work in you. I'm just going to go ahead and jump out there and say, I would not have chosen this particular guy. In fact, I didn't. He did. I still have days where I wonder whether or not he made a good choice. Good thing this life is not over yet. Every day brings new challenges, does it not? Perhaps you've lived with the kind of faith that says, on that day, whatever that day is, if we really come to it in that moment, I'll rise to the occasion. I walked into a physical therapy clinic in the early 90s and it was written on the wall. Once or twice in a man's life, he may have the chance to be a hero. Every day he has the chance to avoid being a coward. I would like to tell you that what we do each day matters more than what you think you will do in that day. What if today we made up our mind to bring the ark into the tabernacle. What if this day we said, if every step is a sacrifice, if all six of them cause me to bleed, it's worth it. If my own family looks on from the window and despises my very existence, I guess I would rather hang out with the slave girls dancing in the street. Church, it has always cost something to be the messengers, the glory carriers. The ark bearers. Look at Matthew 20 and verse 
18. What does it cost to get the ark up on Zion? We are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priest. And the teachers of the law, they will condemn him to death and will turn him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. Mocked, flogged, and crucified. Was mocking not enough? Was flogging not enough? To kill a man in any decent and ordinary way, was it not enough? No! It had to be crucifixion. On the third day, he will be raised to life. What did it cost to get the ark into the tabernacle? See, when you consider the cost of what it took to put his presence inside of you, it certainly means that we now carry something of great value, does it not? I want to tell you he's paid a cost and it's done. But we yet have a cost to pay. Every student will be treated like the master. Jesus himself said this, we do not rise to a station above him and if they treated him this way, how are they going to treat us? We should not think it strange that the tide is turning. We should not act as if something unusual were happening. We were told that this would happen. I have judged him worth it. Where do you stand on the issue? Jesus brought the very presence of God to all mankind on the day of Pentecost. His sacrifice gave those who were credited with His righteousness the ability to receive the presence of the Holy Spirit in a real, sustained, and meaningful way into their very lives. And on Pentecost... He came with fire into His tabernacle. If you don't think that the writers of the New Testament understood Jesus to be bringing them the ark into the tabernacle, then we have to think on phrases like our friend Peter spoke. Look at Second Peter 1, verse 13. Say, there when you were there. Second Peter... 1 and 13. I think it is right to refresh your memory as long as I live in this tent or tabernacle of this body. Peter considered himself to be a tent. Paul also considered himself to be a tent. You can read about it in 2 Corinthians 5. But they were no ordinary tents, my friend. They were not simply some temporary dwelling to be rolled up and discarded. They were not some old leathery glove. No, the master put his hand into the glove and he filled the tent. So in Peter's same letter, 2 Peter 1 and verse 4, he says like this, that he has found everything that he needs. 2 Peter 1 and 4. Through these He has given us His 
very great and precious promises, so that through them you may participate in what? The divine nature and escape the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. The living God calls your body a tent. And He says that He has given you His divine nature. This is no different than David bringing the ark of God into a tabernacle that was made of many colored animal skins. The body of Christ may look like an old tent, but when you peel back the skin, you find something eternal inside. Oh, church, the world makes a mistake to judge this book by its cover. We have always been overlooked and underrated. And that is our strength and glory. When people don't expect much from you, they're overwhelmed when they say, Jesus Christ, come out of you. I want to tell you that you are the head and not the tail. Very great worship happened in Second Samuel 6 and very great worship happened tonight. Some could look in the windows and despise us. Others would look in the windows and be drawn to us. There have always been those who stood on the other side of the window. But right out of 2 Samuel 6 comes 2 Samuel 7, starting in verse 11. Say there when you were there. The Lord declares to you that the Lord Himself will establish a house for you. You may live in a tent now. But there is a house that is being built for you. When your days are over and you rest with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, who will come from your own body and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Did we sing tonight, yours is the kingdom? That promise was given to David and the son of David has appeared And he has called you his brother. You can lament whichever politician happens to be in office. But I am the brother of the king eternal. And the son of his father. All connected to royalty. I will be his father and he will be my son, said God. In 1 Peter 2, beginning in verse 4. We have a comment on this very passage. <coughs> the first Peter 2 and verse 4. As a result, he does not live the rest of his earthly life for evil human desires, but rather for the will of God. Keep going. For you have spent... Enough time in the past doing what pagans choose to do, living in debauchery, lust, drunkenness, orgies, carousing, and detestable idolatry. They think it strange that you do not plunge with them into the same flood of dissipation and they heap abuse on you. But they have to give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is the reason the gospel was preached even to those who are now dead so that they might be judged according to men in regard to the body, but live according to God in regard to the Spirit. The end of all things is near. Therefore, be clear-minded 
and self-controlled so that you may pray. I want to tell you that Jesus Christ is building His house. And in building His house, He has condemned those that said that it couldn't be done and came from the heavens. He has proven the skeptics on the earth wrong. And in the name of Jesus, He is doing it through you. Somebody say amen. Amen. 1 Peter 2 and verse 4, As you come to Him, the living stone rejected by men, but chosen by God and precious to Him. You also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices to God through Jesus Christ. You are the house that He was building. You are the house of the tabernacle of God. You are stone laid upon stone to house His glory. Peter understood it. He lived it and he preached it. And now the task has fallen to us. He goes so far as to say, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in Him will never be put to shame. Now to you who believe this stone is precious, but to those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the capstone. I want you to understand that what He is doing is He has laid the foundation. Now He is building His house, and that is you. And he will come back to complete his house and all the power of hell cannot stop him. The question is, do you remain a part of his house? Do you remain a part of his house that reflects his glory? In the name of Jesus Christ, will you live for his glory or will you live for a bowl of lentils? Will you live considered weak and inferior but trusting the power of God? Or will you give in on the day of battle and run away? Is it okay with you if men despise you and reject you, call you ordinary? As long as your God says that you're extraordinary. The time is coming when the church will have to decide. When scriptures like Luke 6.26 will come true. Where all men may hate you and reject you. It may be hate speech in the very near future to simply read the first chapter of Romans. Our mayor is a sodomite. The pastor of the largest church in our state thanked God for bringing her to her office while she sat next to her lesbian lover. Bible in her hand. And the world doesn't think this is strange at all. Very soon, businesses in our city may face legal action for calling a boy's bathroom a boy's bathroom and a girl's bathroom a girl's bathroom. This would be funny if it were not true. Pastors in this very city are being threatened and intimidated. Their sermons are being requested. Their personal communications examined. We lived in another time, you would call that fascism. Today, it's simply the political climate. And some will shake in their boots and worry that the IRS may pull their tax-exempt status. I never wanted it that bad. If you give to this church so that you get a tax deduction, shame on you. I don't want your money. I never did. 
I want you to reflect the glory of God. And I am so happy to not work for the IRS or any government official. They will never buy me. I can't be purchased. I gave my life to the King of Kings. And you did too. This is our hour to shine. In 2 Samuel 8, we find out what happens at the return of our King. Are you in 2 Samuel 8? I am not. In 2 Samuel 8, it says, In the course of time, David defeated the Philistines and subdued them. He took Metheg Ammon from the control of the Philistines. David also defeated the Moabites. He made them lie down on the ground and measured them off with a length of cord. Was it hard for David to win? Sounds almost effortless. I would like to tell you that the King of Kings will be victorious and those who are faithful will stand by his side and this battle is not nearly difficult when the fullness of time comes. It's only for a little while that we're made to suffer and only a little while that we have a chance to prove the genuineness of our faith. I will not despise this time. Revelation 15 and verse 2 ought to be an encouragement to us. And I saw what looked like a sea of glass mixed with fire. And standing beside the sea, those who had been, what's that word? Victorious over the beast in his image and over the number of his name, they held harps given them by God who stood with the King of Kings and sang the song of Moses. Those who were victorious. In the name of Jesus, we do not have to hide in our prayer closets. We do not have to back off in silence. We don't have to simply withdraw and hope that our absence will speak a message. We are the victorious sons of the living God. We are here to reflect His glory and to shine light in a dark world. When did we decide that our passivity would save the world? I reject the idea of a silent majority. And I think that although great men said it, it has become a great excuse for cowardice. I love the idea that we witness with our actions, but unfortunately, we have bought into the idea that words are no longer necessary. Jesus Christ will stand with those who are victorious and overcome the beast. I don't think they will have overcome him by building a bomb shelter and hiding in it. Or retreating to a monastery and hiding in it. Or hiding in their homes for fear of the world around them. You were made for the battlefield. You were made to face hunger. You were made to face the sword. You were made to face fear and intimidation. You were made to be mocked and despised and still show the glory of God. All that that time may be yet upon us. In 2 Samuel 6, we see the glory of God go into a tabernacle. In 2 Samuel 7, we see a promise to build God's house. In 2 Samuel 8, it's like the coming of Christ. The enemies of God are laid down at His feet. Oh my. Oh my. After the coming of Christ, what will life look like? Turn with me to 2 Samuel 9 where we will bring our message to a close. 
You may be asking yourself, I don't feel much like I am full of the glory of God. When I look, I see a wrinkled tent. Maybe I thought it was once a glorious house, but these days it is sagged to the point that it looks like a broken down lean-to. I want to encourage you that there is a one-way ticket to the king's table found in 2 Samuel 9. David asked, Is there anyone still left of the house of Saul to whom I can show kindness for Jonathan's sake? It turns out that because of an ancient friendship, because of a covenant that happened before you were even born, the king of kings is looking for someone to lavish his grace upon. You may have been born in the wrong house. You may have all of the wrong genetics, all of the wrong tendencies. But he was seeking you out. Show kindness for Jonathan's sake. What did you do to earn the favor of God? Why does he love you so? What was your condition when he found you? Now there was a servant of Saul's household named Ziba. They called him to appear before David. And the king said to him, Are you Ziba, your servant? He replied. The king asked, Is there still, I'm sorry, Is there no one still left of the house of Saul whom I can show God's kindness? Ziba answered the king, There is still a son of Jonathan. He is crippled in both feet. Maybe in your pursuit of the Lord, you have tripped more than you've run. Maybe in your pursuit of the Lord, you've developed weak ankles and weak knees. The Lord did not pick you because you were talented and strong and wealthy and influential. He picked you because your infirmity is a chance to display the power of His healing, saving, restoring nature. David is not moved at all by the infirmity of this boy. He says, where is he? The king asked. Ziba answered, he is at the house of Makir, son of Amiel in Lodabar. Lodabar means no pasture. Turns out that the reason we've been weak so often is we have not been eating from the king's table. Let me ask you, we had worship not 45 minutes ago. How many of you felt weak during worship? How many of you felt almost overcome by the world during worship? How many of you were so crippled by financial pressure during worship? How many of you thought, I just can't go on, perhaps I'll kill myself during worship? I bet not one. Because when you're eating at the king's table, you begin to feel like the king's son. You want to reflect the glory of God. We have to spend more time in the glory of God. We can all acknowledge that we started crippled in a place where there was no pastor. But that is not where God has said we are today. So King David had him brought from Lodabar, from the house of Mekir, son of Emiel. When Mephibosheth, son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, came to David, he bowed down to pay him honor. David said, Mephibosheth, Oh, my goodness, something about the Hebrew here. 
caused the English translators to put an explanation mark. Do you know that when heaven recorded your name in the Lamb's book of life, the Scripture suggests that the angels erupted in worship. They erupted in joy. Jesus said, Rejoice not that the demons submit to you, but that you are written in the book of life. Just the name of Mephibosheth was said by King David with joy. It happens to mean exterminator of shame. The great question about the word Mephibosheth is did it mean exterminator of shame when he was named that? Or does it mean that because of what God did with his name? Oh, that my life could be that blurry. That one day, somebody might have seen the glory of God in it and say, was he that way? Or do we just remember him that way because of the king that was inside of him? Your servant, he replied. Don't be afraid, David said to him, for I will surely show you kindness. Why? For the sake of your father, Jonathan. I will restore to you all the land that belonged to your grandfather, Saul, and you will always eat at my table. Mephibosheth bowed down and said, What is your servant that you should notice a dead dog like me? I don't fault you for thinking of yourself Lowly. When we don't understand that we were made to reflect His glory, sometimes all we can see is the shabbiness of our tent. When we don't understand that we're in the process of being seated at the King's table, sometimes all we see is our crippled feet. But hear me, daughter of God, son of God, the king was looking for you to show kindness to you. He called for you while you were crippled. He called for you while you were just an old tent. And with great sacrifice, he brought his glory into you. And he set you at the king's table so that you would no longer be a dead dog. Verse 11 says it this way. Then Ziba said to the king, Your servant will do whatever my lord the king commands his servant to do. To which you say, Yeah, you will. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. He may have thought he was a dead dog, but where did he dine that night and every night thereafter? At the king's table. You may have walked in here a dead dog. You may have walked in here in an empty tabernacle, but you don't have to leave that way. Great worship will bring you a revelation of a great promise. A great promise will bring you great victories. Great victories will cause great sonship in your life. You will begin to realize that you are seated at the king's table. Another way to say it is that the crucifixion brought the outpouring of the Spirit. And the outpouring of the Spirit built God's house. And the building of God's house ushered in the return of the King. And the return of the King put you at the table with the servants working the fields. 
Oh, we have a very great plan. If you only had four chapters of the Bible, that plan is revealed in these four chapters. If you only have four minutes left in your life, I would say use those four minutes to reflect the glory of the Lord. Had we more time, I would read to you out of Micah. The whole world is going to see the sons of God and come worship at His mountain and the law is going to go forward. Since we don't have that time, I want to give you one more verse and then we'll take communion together. In Luke 19, let us end with the 17th verse. Oh, that you would hear these words. You may have entered a dead dog, an empty tabernacle. May have been despised the same way a dead dog in an empty house would be. The window watchers may have hurled insults at you. The others may have sold the right to stand next to you for their bowl of beans and mocked you on the day of battle and despised you as weak and ordinary. But if you hear these words one day, oh my goodness, does it become worth it. Well done, my good servant. His master replied, because you have been trustworthy in a very small matter. Take charge of ten cities. See, you walk in crippled and you walk out a ruler with the king of kings. And what is the price? Only this life. You know, an eternity as a ruler with the king weighed in the balance of these few years might not be worth comparing. We're going to take communion together now. And here is what we're hoping for as we close our service. We're hoping for the same transformation that took place between the crucifixion and the resurrection to occur in our hearts and lives. When we take this wine and this bread, Remember that Jesus said, this is my body and this is my blood. And he also went on to say, and we will not do this again until we do it anew in the kingdom. But every time we do it now, we are testifying to the day that we will do it then. It's like that scene in the movie where someone said, there is a chance. If you wish, you can focus on the fact that we don't drink the fourth cup now. But what I hear in Jesus' words are we will drink it then. You may not be received as a king now, but Scripture says you will be a king then. Tabernacles and dead dogs, a tabernacle is glorious if God's present in it. And a dog's not all that bad if he's brought back to life and made into a son. I'm willing to be an empty tabernacle and a dead dog if that's not how I finish. Could you all stand to your feet?